often say one person can change the world. My next guest, Gunhild Stordalen, the stunning Norwegian activist and environmentalist who is fighting for food, for the environment, and for her own life, has a passion for living and for change and for driving global change that I have never seen before. Hear how she finds the courage to keep fighting, fighting for herself, for her friendships, and for the world, for the world to eat better, for women around the world to have the food and the clean water they need. Gunhild is a true inspiration, and I'm honored to have her on today. I'm, I'm so happy to be here with you, Gunhild, because every time I interview someone, I think, how did I meet them? What has our journey been together? And I think the thing about this podcast that's maybe unique or different, or I like to think special, is all of the interviewees are really friends or women that have been part of my journey, women that have really inspired me. And I'll never forget when we met. I think it was three three years ago now. And you came to our ambassadorial residence and I was like, wow, this woman, you were a ray of sunlight. I mean, that sounds very cheesy, but you were. And you had so much positive energy. And I remember we were both joking about, you know, our husbands and being married to these older men and ha ha ha, and look what we're doing. And ever since then, I think we had such a great connection. And you've had so much going on the past three years. Both the forum has grown amazingly. And so I'd love to start there and just, you know, you're in New York now, we're in your amazing suite at the Mandarin Oriental. You've been doing a lot of work at the United Nations. You've brought the forum here. Tell us a little bit about the past few days here in New York and how it's felt. Are you happy with the forum? It has been spectacular uh, being here and being in the at the United Nations uh, hosting this EDEX seminar with mm. Five ministries, uh, foreign affairs or health, uh, from Indonesia to Malawi to Brazil, of course, Sweden and Norway. And having these discussions on the importance of getting it right on food to succeed in the post 2015 agenda. And having, I mean, one thing is when you are trying to make the arguments yourself. But when you hear people like Jeffrey Sachs, uh, the Norwegian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Bergi Brenda, um, people from UNICEF or uh, other really high-level people, uh, World Economic Forum, and et cetera, et cetera, making the same arguments, advocating for, yes, we have to have a much, much stronger focus on sustainable, healthy nutrition uh, to a growing population within the planetary boundaries. And we, I mean, as Jeffrey Sachs put it so well, we can't solve uh, the, the really the, the big challenges the world is facing without getting SDG 2, uh, which is the related mm. to, to the food issue the most. That's kind of the hardest one. And this is kind of the tricky issue, the missing link, and here is the eat platform uh, kind of, uh, we, we found a niche uh, and hit a nerve and mm. people get it. And that's, I mean, I get goose uh, goosebumps. Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, by, by having these kind of 
uh, well, the experience and having 540 people in the UN, mm. I never thought it was possible. I mean, we are literally competing with the Pope and Putin <laughs> and still people are there. So it was great. Gunhild, you underestimate one thing. Jeffrey Sachs is great. President Clinton, whom you brought to Stockholm, I was happy to be at that day. Fantastic. But it's you. You know, you are the tie that binds. I saw you on a panel with Melinda Gates this year when we saw each other in Stockholm. You were a star. You are certainly, and I mean a star in the way of you are doing this with passion and people can feel that you bring all these amazing people together. And sometimes I think as women, we don't allow ourselves to own that. You know, do you feel that you can say, yes, I've done this and I'm continuing to do it and I'm going to stand out in this way and promote this amazing initiative. Do you feel like you've been successful? Well, I think this is a yes and no question from, from your side, I think, because no person uh, is that important. But the idea is that important. And I think having having been the one putting that idea on the table and had the opportunity to connect with a lot of people that really saw the need to to get these things right and really link science, business, politics, civil society to try to sort out how should we sustainably feed a healthy population that will be more than 9 billion by mid-century. I mean, nobody knows yet and we haven't started to kind of connect the dots between health and sustainability uh, when it comes to food and nutrition. And I mean, as a medical doctor, I've been... I've been in the health society for too long uh, and I, I realize how little focus it is on the environmental side uh, and looking into, I mean, climate change, loss of biodiversity, all these uh, huge environmental threats that we are facing. The medical community have kind of failed to take into consideration that a, a sustainable planet uh, is a, the fundament for human existence. and But, but of course, this is uh, fortunately changing as we speak and is more and more engagement within the health community. And I think breaking down those silos between the different scientific disciplines and also try really to translate new knowledge into action in business and policy development and of course, having this wider community engaged in the issues and not at least us as consumers. I think that's the kind of one of the big challenges we are facing right now. And I think it's one of the best things you've done with the Eat Forum. And I think I've, I've been to two or three now already. You bring in not just big names, but really influential people from politics. I mean, how do you maintain that positive energy in, through everything that you have been through? And even starting the foundation. I mean, what, what is the alternative? I mean, we can make a difference. We can get the world on track. We can solve these big challenges. Otherwise, it's the most certain way to, to fail on all these issues if people stop believing it is possible. So I think, I mean, I'm born a hardcore optimist. Uh, but I think, uh, and, and even more now, uh, suddenly facing uh, big personal mm -hmm. challenges with my disease, everything going through that treatment. Um, I think not being a believer would 
it it wouldn't work. So I think having more of these, yes, we can, mm. and and your. I've always been kind of uh, raised uh, from parents telling me, maybe a bit naive, but yes, Gunelli, you can make a difference. You can influence not only your own your own life, but you can make a difference for the rest of uh, society as such. And having, I mean, being raised that way, I think I've always uh, looked at things as, okay, well, your mind is your limit. And if you are not a believer in what you can achieve, who should believe in you then? I mean, nobody will. If you you are the one, and, and I'm looking at you because I know you believe that you can make a difference, right? I do. But <laughs> I was the raised the same way. I mean, not only was I told I better, I can do it, but I have to. Mm. I mean, that was the mandate. My parents immigrated from Eastern Europe. It was really on my shoulders to kind of prove not only successful, but really make an impact in a very personal way. You know, I'll never forget when I went to Sweden, my mother said, I don't care about Nobel. I don't care. I don't even understand these things that you're going to be doing. But I hope that you will find women, especially immigrant women like me, and help them. Because I could have used that help when I came to America. And I always had this voice. So to them, I can also, I can do everything, but I can never do enough so it's a it's a drive and I I bring that up because really I've met a lot of women and as we discussed on the elevator up a lot of great women are doing this podcast I'm lucky to meet a lot of women through my work you are one of if not the most determined people I've ever met not just women or men and I will tell you I mean it and I will say and I hope I can share this I'll never forget and about a year ago when you emailed me that you were sick. And it was about midnight. And I got this email because there was a story coming out the next day. And I w- I'm going to cry now. I was so upset. I couldn't believe that someone like you, who had the ability to do so much and who I know is going to do so much anyway, so young, so beautiful, so brilliant, had this kind of challenge in her life. And I stayed up all night and I wrote you a long email, I think I remember. And then the thing that I want to get to, the next day I got an email from you saying, now we're going to work on getting Mayor Bloomberg to eat for him. Let's keep going. Let's do the next. And I said, my God, that's what, what I would like to think that I would do. I don't know if I could, but I hope you know you're incredible. And, and all of us who know you feel that. But now that I look who's talking, because, I mean, you could have chosen a much easier life. You could have been the, the wife of the ambassador. You could have, I mean, having a lot of fun, go shopping, do nothing. And you are so dedicated, so passionate, and you are really trying to mobilize, to empower women, to make the world a better place to be. And and you really care about people. And some sometimes when you meet people and you feel this is kind of a special moment because here is a person that really that really cares. Mm. Having that in mind and being through kind of a close to uh, death experience, and you, I mean, you take it from for granted mm. that you have a lifetime to make the world a better place. At least I did. Mm-hmm. And then you suddenly, you might not be able to pass it. You might stop there. And and I had to discuss with Peter, okay, what do we do if I just have another year? 
So, and then having this kind of the urgency of the situation, mm. to me, it was kind of, and I, I was thinking a lot of uh, what this really meant. And my desperation at that time, I realized if you, if you have a, such a poor prognosis, then you are willing to do almost everything. And if we do this, this parallel with the world or the, the society we live in, we have all the data. We have all the kind of the diagnostic tools and the prognosis of the planet is poor. And we are not in the appropriate response. We should have panicked. Shit, we are about to fail. Let's start acting. Let I mean, we should have done it not yesterday, but a decade ago. Mm. And still it's kind of apathy mm. and, and lack of mobilization. And that makes me so nervous. Why are we failing to get out these messages? And it might be that kind of doom and gloom people have, okay, climate change is terrible, public health crisis is rising, we can't do anything about it, anger and obesity, all these kind of things mixed together and people are asking, okay, what can I do as one person? Probably nothing. It doesn't help if I uh, turn off the light bulbs uh, in the toilet when I leave. Uh, I can't influence. And then we need people like you going out there and try trying really to empower people and and communicating these messages wrapped in another or framed another way i think is kind of where we end up so i mean the policymakers the world's leaders they all know what to do but i just don't know how to get re-elected once they have done it right they do, they, they they don't have the voters uh, support. So how do we kind of change that narrative? I think you're right about the apathy. And unfortunately, and I'll say especially in my country, because I had the privilege of living in Sweden, and I think the Nordics are really special, actually, in being leaders on the environment. But Americans, unless it touches you personally, unless it's in my backyard, unless there's kind of some kind of nuclear pit fueling mm. up in my yard, smelling up my tomatoes or whatever people grow, they don't care. And I think you coming out and the things you've done about losing your hair, you know, so many women were inspired by that. And you coming out and really sparing your soul about your health, your future, the urgency you have has been really inspiring, but it, it must, must have been, been really hard. I mean, how are you today? Well, I mean, it, it wasn't hard. I had no choice. I mean, you can't be kind of uh, a public voice and mm -hmm. then suddenly disappear for half a year. Yeah. I mean, people were already speculating, why are they leaving so early? Why are they kind of acting strange? Uh, lots of cancellations. Are they on rehab? I mean, all these kind of rumors. So I had no choice. It was not because I really wanted to to share that story with the rest of the world. But I mean, okay, it was that I, I had to do it. And it's a useful experience. And it was fantastic to, to get so much support, even from people you, you, you uh, don't know and kind of 
if that story uh, can help someone, if if just one person feels empowered and think, yes, it might be possible. I want, I want accept. I know for a no, we have no treatment. You just have to accept that you are getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and we don't know how this is going to end. Probably not good. Uh, I think not being willing to accept a no for a no is some sometimes a good thing. A little bit your journey with the foundation and Eat Forum, because that's really your vehicle. And I mean, it's hard building a movement. My sister-in-law, Mika, as we were talking in the elevator, she's really trying to build a movement for women to know their value and then grow their value, be entrepreneurs, promote themselves in the workplace, kind of learn to stand out. And the name of this podcast is Stand Out because... It really affected me, this Jantela in Sweden and, and how you're not. I don't know if you have that in Norway. I don't think oh so. Oh, my God. Do you? I promise you. It's like 10 times. Uh, Worse? Yeah. No. I would say. Without Worse being in Sweden? Yeah, absolutely. How do you handle it then? I mean, you and Peter are not Jante. I am not Jante either. But Jante is kind of dead. I mean, he I is, he is so. yeah, he, he's like so last century, I would say. <laughs> And then coming to coming to the US, then you then you really get inspired because Absolutely. I think one thing uh, the US has learned or even have to continue learning the rest of the world is that you have to you have to clap your hands for people that wants to be successful, mm. that want to make it here. And and coming to Manhattan, I, I Peter and I were uh, fortunate to have the opportunity of spending three months um, in New York while I'm, I was writing together my thesis. And it was fantastic coming to this, the, the big apple that opened its arms. And it doesn't matter religion, culture, color, uh, gay or straight, whatever, everybody's welcome. That was kind of the sense we got when we came here. And I think this is a lesson learned that I really have kind of embraced uh, ever since. It's incredibly empowering. I mean, I think in America, it's not a choice about standing out. You have to stand out if you want to do anything because it's so competitive. There's so many voices. And I think you're right. There is the Oprah element, I say. You know, people, women like this, we go on TV and we say, you go, girl. I mean, this is the phrase that I was raised with in the 90s. Like, go for it. And I think that was the one thing of all my love of the Nordics and Sweden. And there is this notion of keeping you in your place. The jab, as we say in America, kind of keeping them down. If you're starting to get too much attention or success in something you're doing or becoming too outspoken, it began to get a little bit of negative energy around you. I thought a little bit. I didn't get that as much. I think people just thought I was the crazy American and I could say whatever I wanted. But I mean, have you ever felt that way in Norway or? No, but I think if you are trying to make a difference or if you're trying to change something, uh, it doesn't matter what, really. If you're, I mean, change is, uh, is difficult uh, and there, there will be resistance. So I think uh, an important lesson is, is really to, to ignore uh, the resistance. If you, if you think it's right, you have to trust yourself and then you have to go. 
uh, go for it. And that's that's kind of what we'll learn in the rural countryside in Norway, where I, where I was raised. And and it was not. I mean, I didn't learn to to kind of be very respectful and humble for authorities. And I mean that that has. Uh, uh, brought me into a lot of not trouble, but <laughs> a lot of embarrassing situations. But at the same time, it has kind of opened a lot of doors. And I think having that's kind of an, an important message which I try to communicate that you have to dare to believe that yes, you can, and you can you can make a difference. And people, not everybody will uh, applaud what you are doing. Of course not. But that's impossible. You can't win them all. So mm. so. Still, be confident enough to think that you have you have something to bring to the table, uh, and that's. I mean, it might be a long journey, uh, but inevitably you you will end up there. But I think having uh, reframing uh, the issues and going from only challenges and problems and all the difficult uh, difficulties we are we are facing to really highlight the opportunities. That's kind of an important uh, change of narrative. And and when we are talking about how to change really the global food system for the better and and to ensure that we we have a, an um, equitable food system that delivers healthy diets to a growing population without destroying literally the environment that we all rely upon, I think a lot have to start with the consumer uh, and like you and me and other women that often tend to be stakeholders uh, in families when it comes to to purchasing food and putting food on the table. And in particular, this is valid for a lot of low and middle income countries. So reaching out to women and empowering women and allow them to be better decision makers and asking that questions uh, that really will have will will force the food industry to change we are touching up on some some really difficult uh, questions but but at the same time i i don't think we should ever underestimate the power of the consumers in changing behaviors and uh, one one interesting story from norway and sweden actually uh, two countries that are quite comparable when it comes to culture. Mm. Both countries raised the issue of palm oil, unsustainable palm oil. In Sweden, it was framed as an environmental issue where palm oil production uh, caused environmental damage, climate change, loss of biodiversity, etc., etc. In Norway, it was framed as a combined health and environmental issue. Yes, they still talked about loss of natural habitat for the poor orangutans, etc. But at the same time, it was framed as a personal health issue because saturated fat in palm oil could cause um, heart disease, stroke, etc. And what happened in those two countries? That's quite uh, exciting. In Sweden, almost nobody knew after a few years' time what palm oil was or what was the challenges. People kind of ignored the environmental things. But in Norway, where the health issue was kind of the selling point, palm oil consumption dropped by two-thirds. 
um, during a couple or two years time. And that was dramatic because the consumer said, okay, I don't want anything uh, hidden in my food. Uh, a lot of processed, uh, in particular ultra processed food contains a lot of palm oil. So they said, okay, no, we, we don't want it. And the food industry did a 180 degree overnight almost and start marketing food without palm oil, blah, blah, blah. And then it ended up as a very, very successful campaign. And when it comes to uh, food, health and the environment, it's not always so that environment and health go hands in hand, but it often is. And whenever that's the reality, when healthy diets are more sustainable diets and vice versa, I think having linking these issues makes a much stronger case. And also looking into the enormous opportunity by being a more critical uh, consumer, saying, I'm not accepting that my kids should have this ultra-processed food. You don't know whether it's plant or animal proteins or stuff. It's like 200 ingredients. And you can't tell if you, are not, uh, if you don't have a PhD in nutrition. You can't tell that this is sugar all over the line, added sugar, added fat, added salt. It's impossible for us as consumers making the right choices. And here in the U.S., it's a, I mean, it's the food deserts really stands out where we as consumers, we really, we, we don't have a choice. The availability and the prices are so important for having a, a, a kind of a choice environment where you actually can make the right choices. If the food that is healthy and sustainable is too expensive and if it's not available around, of course, you end up with the poor choice that make you sick and that is detrimental for the environment. So it's kind of a very complex but still solvable challenge. No, it's amazing. I mean, a quadrant of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., is basically a food desert. This is something that Michelle Obama has been active on. Yeah. And, and I, I think I said this to you three years ago when we met, you are on to it because you are connecting with where people can actually understand which they feel inside food and mostly their children's health mm. also. And for the selfish people, their own health and longevity mm. and also the women's aspects. I mean, we've known for a while that 80% of consumer spending is done by women. But I think in the developing world where we are seeing, unfortunately, some of the worst poverty continuing, also some of the worst pollution and degradation because people don't have the knowledge, women really control the area there and the purse. I mean, this is going to sound a little bit sexist, but in those areas, you know, you give women the money any day. That's why I'm so passionate about personally about entrepreneurship and microfinancing, because it's proven that when a woman has the money in the family, she pays for good food, for the children's health and for schools. The men, they go drink and get prostitutes. This is proven, <laughs> not just me. I'm laughing because and, you're right. And so yeah. I want to know, I mean, what, when we speak about the way forward, and I know you are going to do a lot more, how are you thinking about kind of leveraging the women's aspect or what's next for the foundation for the Eat Forum? Well, the, the, the Eat Forum, which has grown into the Eat Initiative mm -hmm. um, and which now we have had like 70 uh, partners around the globe, uh, we are still 
very heavy in in Europe and US. Uh, but we are entering Asia, we are entering Africa, we are doing an e-tax event in Cali, in Colombia, uh, later next month. Um, and, and we are also partnering up with more foundations that will open up doors in, in other low- and middle-income countries. But first, back to the women's issue and, and bringing the gender uh, equality issue on onto the table. 70% of the world's smallholder farmers are women, mm. but they are only owning like 1% of the land. And microfinance having or empowering women, the decision makers in the families, women being the key for change and lifting families out of poverty. I think without adding this dimension, we will never ever succeed. And I mean, as uh, as Mary Robinson um said you can't change the world uh, and make it for the better with almost half the global population left outside boardrooms where the decisions are being made. So I think without empowering women, we we have no chance. Um, But when we are looking back to what what EAT actually aimed to achieve, um, first of all, we need more interdisciplinary evidence on what is what is healthy and sustainable diets and food production systems. By now, we don't have the frameworks, we don't have the metrics. So it's a lot of research that we need to get in place. And then we have, of course, to translate this into new policy developments. And I mean, at some point we will have a tax on sugar. Sugar is poison. Uh, (laughs) We will have to tax red meat in high income countries. But what it is currently uh, undertaking, because if you if you should um, change something, it's a very good idea to start tracking and measuring. So we uh, launched at the UN event on Friday two projects, one uh, set of integrated indicators uh, to the SDG um, uh, targets that aim to capture both the health and the sustainability dimension of diets and food production. Evidence-based indicators are kind of, it's key to to change and also monitor, but also ensure that we achieve the targets. Uh, And then we, uh, together with Sustainable Development Solution Network, um, Jeffrey Sachs uh, UN-led initiative, and CGR Consortium, this huge network of agricultural researchers uh, around the globe. Um, These joint projects, um, the other one was um, a global database and an annual report to start tracking, monitoring progress towards sustainable, healthy diets and food systems and start measuring countries. Because when you launch an index or an annual report and start measuring how how does Sweden perform? How does Brazil? I mean, it's, it's a very good way to start or to catalyze uh, change and start uh, the competition. Nobody want to be in the, at the uh, bottom of the scale. So this is two concrete uh, uh, projects together with, of course, research and business engagement, and uh, etc. You know, President Jimmy Carter visited us in Sweden and he, um, he, he knew I was active in the women's roles and he told me this story and he the Carter Foundation is very involved also kind of in sub-Saharan Africa and in agriculture and women's issues and kind of supporting sustainable farming and 
he was visiting a farm that had won their prize. So the Carter Foundation gives a big grant. And so it's very, I mean, you can imagine these villages and it's a substantial amount of American money they give. And President Carter always goes and personally gives the grant to the winner, which blows them away, of course. (laughs) And he said he went to this farm and he's speaking to this couple and he was a peanut farmer, famously. He always said this as part of his campaign and, and he was asking this African farmer, so how did you do this? How did you do that? How did you set up this irrigation system? Every time he would change the subject or get upset or run away or get one of his kids to kind of make some noises to distract him. Finally, I think it took about six hours, he said, just go ask my wife. She's the one that did it. (laughs) And I love that story because it's exactly, you know, it's what you're doing and it's the concept of this show is us empowering each other, encouraging, encouraging each other to have a voice and then ultimately the woman empowering herself, standing out. And so the red thread in this show is I I always ask, you know, Gunhild, how do you stand out personally? I'm kind of frank with my ideas and my passion, and I'm not I'm not afraid to to say what I believe is important to to address. I'm I'm very humble in the way that I don't have the solutions to this, but I I have been very fortunate and have the opportunity to to connect with a lot of people and gather uh, people that have that have part of the solution uh, and together can hopefully puzzle that complex puzzle. And how do you stand up for others? I think having being a supportive friend and colleague and and really clap your hands when people yeah. succeed or they say okay I want to do this. As long as you want something, as long as you want to make a difference. I don't care if it's for yourself, for your kids, for your family, or for the wider society. If it's to get a better job, to move on from that job you're currently in, or if you want to kind of stop or quit quit your job to go home and spend time with your kids, or change the world, or save the oceans or the forest or whatever. I think it's so important that we embrace all kind of diversity and and different objectives and really push the world forward and say, yes, let's go big or go home Mm -hmm. and really, really dare to set some objectives and and say them loud. That's kind of maybe the most important uh, advice to other other women and other uh, young girls okay, set yourself a a target and it might be too high, but it's, I mean, I can guarantee you, you will end up much, much further than if you never ever dared to set a goal at all. So don't consider it as a failure if you are not reaching that kind of sky high (laughs) target. You, I mean, at the end of the day, you ended up closer to that target. And one uh, one of my advisory board members uh, in the Eat Initiative, Jonas Garstøre, which is the, the leader of the Labour Party mm-hmm. in Norway, and possibly, uh, according to a lot of people, uh, our next prime minister. Um, uh, however, he said that when he got questions, why are you in this Eat advisory board? I mean, two years ago when nobody, I mean, it was a, it was a breakfast seminar, basically, in Norway. Um, and then he said, well... It's a really, really good idea. And the worst thing, well, it might not not succeed. 
but it has a huge potential and I believe in it. And I think having this kind of, well, the worst thing that can happen, it might not succeed. It won't do any damage. I think that's a very good philosophy and approach. This podcast is a collaboration with Doggins Industry and ACAST. Produced by Henrik Janssen and ACAST. With Sandra Moline as supervising producer and Carl Rosander as executive producer. 